Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam. Sam is not with us recording because he is doing talks around the world about policing, and he is organizing with activists across the globe. After the news, I'm joined by Cassandra Stubbs, the director of the ACLU Capital Punishment Project, and Anthony Graves, 138th U.S. Death Row Exoneree, and now the Smart Justice Initiatives Manager at the ACLU of Texas. After 18 and a half years... Two execution dates, over 413 people being executed around you. And by the time I got to the cell with the officer and he said, you want anything out of here? I said, man, I don't want nothing. I just want to go before y'all change y'all mind. A quick warning, there's some graphic imagery in this interview, but I think it's really worth it and I learned a lot. Now, the message for this week is actually about me. So the paperback of my book came out on September 4th. I wanted to let you know that you can buy it now. The paperback is less expensive than the hardcover. So please get it. Make sure your friends get it. Tell anybody who cares about these issues to get it. It is part memoir, part essays. It is about the last five years, the lessons that I've learned, and also where I think we go. It's entitled On the Other Side of Freedom. You can find the links at DeRay.com, D-E-R-A-Y.com, or you can buy wherever books are sold. Again, the paperback of my book called On the Other Side of Freedom is out now. Let's go. Hey, it's Sam Sinyangwe, and today my news is about the NYPD. On August 19th, the NYPD finally, after five years, fired Officer Pantaleo for killing Eric Garner with an illegal chokehold. That same day, the police union of the NYPD, the Patrolman Benevolence Association, put out a statement encouraging officers to, quote, exercise the utmost caution in making arrests and essentially encouraging them to engage in another work slowdown. Now, you'll recall in 2014 and early 2015, in the wake of massive protests, again following the outrage over the killing of Eric Garner and police killings across the country, the Patrolman Benevolence Association encourages officers to engage in a work slowdown, specifically reducing the number of arrests for low-level offenses. They said that officers should only make arrests when absolutely necessary, which, of course, is telling as to what they're currently making arrests for. But during the time that officers were engaged in that slowdown, we saw a decrease, not an increase, in serious crime. The whole idea of broken windows policing was proposed as a solution to serious crime. By cracking down on low-level offenses, the idea was that it would create an environment that would somehow discourage people from engaging in more serious crimes. Well, that wasn't true when the police stopped engaging in aggressive enforcement of low-level offenses in 2014 and 15 during that slowdown. In fact, research published in the journal Nature has shown that serious crime actually went down during the time period of that slowdown. Now, fast forward to right now, where the NYPD is engaged in a slowdown. 
In fact, when you look at the data on arrests during the past two weeks, we see a decline of 11% in felony arrests, 17% in misdemeanor arrests, so lower level arrests, and a decline in 32% in arrests for moving violations. So this is one of the lowest level offenses. So clearly the NYPD is significantly reducing the number of low level offenses in particular that it is arresting people for. And again, just like in 2014 and 15, data from the NYPD's own Comstat program is showing that serious crime is reducing and the city is getting safer now that the NYPD has given up on broken windows policing. So data from Comstat shows that serious crime is down 20% in the first week of the slowdown. The second week of the slowdown, crime fell even further and is down not only compared to the previous period before the slowdown, but is down compared to the same week in the previous year. So serious crime is down, the city is safer, and there are fewer arrests for low-level offenses. What does this mean? Well, it means that broken windows policing as a strategy has been exposed and debunked as an ineffective way of addressing serious crime. Now let's consider the collateral consequences of this strategy. Broken windows policing has resulted in the aggressive enforcement and arrests predominantly of black and brown people and low-income people for activities that do not at all endanger public safety. It has been a strategy that has been adopted not only by the NYPD, but also police departments across the country. And now what we're seeing is how much of a waste of resources, how much damage has been caused by this strategy for police departments that have engaged in it for years. The NYPD alone has a budget of $6 billion a year. A lot of that clearly is being wasted on arresting people for low-level offenses that are contributing to making society less safe rather than more safe. So... I think this is yet another reminder that oftentimes policing strategies aren't premised on evidence of effectiveness, aren't premised on data, but are rather premised on assumptions about what works that either coincidentally or intentionally seem to be targeting black and brown communities disproportionately and consistently every single time. So use the data, push back against these strategies in your city, and dismantle broken windows policing once and for all so that our communities can be safe. And so that folks aren't being arrested for jumping turnstiles and all of these things that don't really endanger public safety, but are nevertheless resulting in people being funneled into the criminal justice system. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. You know, Clint, if you ever want people to stop calling you I-I-I, you can just take out your ID take a Sharpie and just cross out those three numbers. Like, it'll be fine. Nobody will notice. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get an idea like that, Brittany? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the White House. What in the world? <laughs> what in the world? Like, I can't even. Yeah. I read it like four times because I was like, no, I have to. No, I can't be reading this right. But he took the. Sh- no, that's not. And then he lied. No, that can't. And he was on camp. No, that can't be true. And it was all true. All of it. And the video with the cat. You're like, is this a real video that the president of the United States tweeted out? He did. With yeah. the cat jumping around the, the like doctored photo saying that the hurricane is going to hit Alabama. You're like, what is going on? It's hard to continue to be surprised. And yet I am. And I think we are. It brought me back to my days of, um, I too had an incident in which I used a Sharpie to try and tell an untruth <laughs> in third grade. After every quiz, you would have to bring the quiz home to get it signed by your parents. I was not prepared for this one pop quiz and I got like a D. And in my home, a D was 
it was the end. It was still a wrap. I'm still here somehow. It's a miracle. And I was like, all right, I can die or I can try to forge my mother's signature. And so I used the Sharpie. I don't know why I used the Sharpie because she never uses a Sharpie. So Wait, it was clearly a bad idea. It was bad. And so <laughs> this is a lesson to all the kids out there. But I was trying to forge my mother's signature. Her initials are SSS. And all you needed was the initials. So I was like, okay, I'm good. And it was like, in my third grade mind, I thought I did so well because I was looking at the example and I looked at my paper and I was like, all right, boom, boom, boom. And my teacher is so funny because I gave it to her. She looked at me and I looked at her and she looked at me and I looked at her and she was like, <laughs> thank you. And she didn't say it in the moment. She wasn't like, this is clearly not your mother's signature. And I was like, cool, I made it. But boy, I got home that <laughs> night. Oh my God, it was, ah, I'm still alive somehow, but I never tried to forge anything ever again after that because they called my parents home and when i got home it was you know i won't implicate my parents like that it was it was a wrap. <laughs> it was a wrap that's a particular kind of teacher torture to let you go the entire day thinking that you i really thought i was good that you successfully oh lied but knowing that i've already called your mom so every time you were smiling your teacher was like <laughs> right got something she for did. you when you get home she, did. she got me well, you know, this is what makes sense in a third grader's mind, and apparently also it makes sense in the mind of the President of the United States. I don't know how we got here. I mean, I know how we got here, but I don't know how we got here. It's not even that it's wilder than you thought it'd be, because, you know, whatever, everything's so wild these days, but you're like, you've made a joke out of the office. Like, and it was, you already had made a joke out of it, but you're like blatantly making a joke, and we know it's a joke, but it's sort of bizarre to watch the Republicans defend this. You know, you're like... The hurricane was not going to hit Alabama. That was not true. So when NOAA comes out with a statement sort of being like, well, might have been okay. You're like, the map was not okay. You're like, it's weird to see kids grow up in school and have to learn this as like the American presidency. You're like, the presidency was never like, you know, the beacon of purity. But you're like, this is just a joke. Yeah. Well, hopefully this is giving teachers great impetus to double down on teaching media literacy to kids of all ages because they need it now more than ever to be able to decipher the truth. And in all seriousness, we are continuing to pray for and try to support recovery efforts in all of the places, domestic and abroad, that have been affected by Hurricane Dorian. Yeah, uh, so many thoughts and prayers to the people in the Bahamas. Um, we still don't know the extent of the damage. But again, you know, we have to remember that these places that are our vacation resorts and places of respite for a lot of folks are people's homes and that these people live there and people have lived there for generations on, especially in a place like the Bahamas, such a small island, the, the sort of intergenerational lineage of folks who have been in this small place for the entirety of their families' lives. We shouldn't take that for granted and we should really just continue to support them in every way we can. And now the news. So in 2017, a federal appeals court declared that North Carolina had discriminated against African-American people in the drawing of their district lines with, quote, surgical precision. That was a phrase that was repeated just last week by North Carolina state court, holding the same idea that the state legislature indeed drew district lines with the hopes that Democrats would be 
essentially unelectable and would nearly guarantee Republican victories, even in largely African-American areas. Well, we now know much more about who the surgeon has been this whole time. A man named Tom Hoffeller. He was a GOP operative, and he's been drawing maps for years, at least since 2011, if not before. He's been drawing maps that have been serving as the literal blueprint for gerrymandering, like not a figurative blueprint, the actual blueprints. He's been doing this in North Carolina, Texas, and Arizona, among other states. He essentially tried to keep this secret, but you know, emails don't stay secret for long. And so we've essentially got now a treasure trove of evidence that is the tattletale evidence. What did we find out from this? We found out that in particular, there is a dividing line on the campus of North Carolina A&T University. It is a part of the North Carolina college system, but it is considered a historically black college university or an HBCU. And he drew a line essentially down the middle of that campus so that that campus that has mostly black students on it would be split into two districts that would most likely continue to elect a Republican. And so what is the tattletale evidence that we now have? Because the emails are out. Uh, They didn't stay as secret as he wanted them to. It seems to be that he had records of over a thousand students, their voting habits, their race, their gender, and their zip codes. He could cross-reference that with other data that he had, which was a list of over 5,400 North Carolina college students who lacked the proper ID, according to state law, to vote. If he cross-referenced those, he could literally pinpoint the precise street, Laurel Street, that would divide the campus in half, according to who is likely to vote and who is not likely to vote. I think a lot of people hear us talk about this and think that it is some kind of grand conspiracy, but it often just takes one evilly visionary person who takes the knowledge that is out there and that people are able to obtain through free voting records and use them in ways that are deeply, deeply destructive to communities. I'm glad to see that the courts have continued to uphold what is right here, but the question is how deep has this gone How long has this been going on and where has this happened besides North Carolina where we need to continue to take on the fight? I'm really glad you brought this up, Brittany. And the article talks about how there's this one example of a place in North Carolina that's one of the the wildest and one of the most insidious sort of gerrymanders you'll ever see. I mean, the entire enterprise of gerrymandering, political gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering, when you look at the maps, the absurdity reveals itself so clearly. You're just like, this is made up and people are zigzagging in places that feel convenient for them. But there's one place between the North Carolina's 6th and 13th congressional districts that has the nation's largest black college, which is North Carolina A&T University in Greensboro. And the district line kind of cuts the campus in half and gerrymanders it so precisely that it pretty much guarantees that it will be represented in Congress by two Republicans, that those two districts will be represented by two Republicans for years to come because they are purposefully diluting the black vote, right? So the largest HBCU in the country, they're splitting the vote. And you can go through Hoffler's files and it shows that they looked at the racial makeup, the voting patterns and residence halls of thousands of North Carolina a students. And we're like, all right, how can we create lines through dormitories to make it so that we can ensure that Republicans will continue to hold these seats so that we can effectively dilute the significance of the black vote? And that was just so revealing that you would cut a campus not even cut it in half, right? Like you zigzag through a campus in order to make it most effective for your own sort of political and ideological purposes. The entire pretense of this sort of gerrymandering, they were always like, this doesn't have anything to do with race, or this doesn't have anything to do with political party. But that so clearly is not the case, and North Carolina A&T is emblematic of that. 
And there are a couple of things that come to mind with this. Brittany, I didn't know uh, that A&T was the center of this case. I'd heard about it in the news. Teray went to A&T, my sister, and it was a reminder that Black people matter when it comes to the ballot, that people talk about the importance of Black voters sort of anecdotally. But when you think about it, just at like the numbers, is that the Republicans, while they are not courting Black voters, they are doing a whole lot of work to make sure that Black people don't vote, or if they do vote, that the vote won't matter, because they get... That Black people voting does not bode well for them, but it does bode well for the general population. The other thing is that, you know, I was somewhere recently and somebody was like, well, you know, I blame identity politics for Trump. And like, if the left had just gotten it together, there wouldn't have been Trump. And if the left had worked harder and had gotten more people out to vote, and and it's like, let's be clear, there was more people could have voted. Yes, More people can always vote. We haven't experienced 90% turnout in ever. So can more people vote? Yes. But there were so many people who either voted and the vote was diminished or they couldn't vote at all. So you think about there have been some analysis about the impact of gerrymandering. And there was a study conducted for the AP by the Princeton University Gerrymandering Project. And what they found was that extreme Republican advantages in the states were not happenstance, were not flukes. For instance, the Republican edge in Michigan state house districts had only a one in 16,000 probability of occurring by chance. In Wisconsin's assembly districts, there was a mere one in 60,000 likelihood of it happening randomly. And again, the data shows that these advantages that Republicans got was not because they had more people vote. It was because they figured out how to cut the vote, given the voters in a way that was different. So I'd encourage everybody not to participate in this logic of the left lost the election. It is the right stole the election. And that's not rhetoric. It is actually what happened. What I didn't know too, until I was preparing for this, Brittany, was that there are two ways that people talk about gerrymandering. They either talk about it in terms of packing. So you put a large number of voters from the opposing party into a few districts to concentrate their votes or cracking in which one party spreads the opposing person's supporters across a whole lot of districts to dilute the power of the vote. And I thought that was interesting. I think I'd only really heard of cracking. I hadn't really heard of packing before, but it did help me think about just the strategy. And again, this man, he told people not to send emails, do all that stuff. He dies and we got all the files. I hope that we uncover everybody's files about all of this stuff so that we win and we never stop winning, you know? Expose all of them. And I I think that this point about strategy, DeRay, is really important because obviously we talk about the importance of protecting the vote as a moral issue and as an issue of efficacy, right? And so to the latter point, we have to understand exactly what strategies are at play and what strategies are used by the folks that we support that are harmed by this. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. 
Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. So for my news, I want to talk about something going on in D.C. right now. Uh, and Mark Joseph Stern wrote about this really well in Slate. And it's essentially that there is a new piece of legislation that's been going through D.C. City Council called the Second Look Amendment Act. So the essence of it is this. Neuroscience courts lawmakers have come to a consensus over the past decade or so that young people have enormous capacity for change and that who you are as a young person does not define who you will be for the rest of your life. And that is at the essence of why D.C. is now considering offering some people who have spent the bulk of their adult lives in prison the chance to go up for resentencing and possibly get access to their freedom. The issue right now is that the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Jesse K. Liu, issued a press release suggesting that the reform in D.C. would let loose, quote, hundreds of violent criminals, and it would essentially encourage D.C. residents to contact the bill sponsor and to oppose it. This is bizarre because this is not an elected official in 
Washington, D.C. This is a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney. And this legislation marks another effort by D.C. Council to address the city's mass incarceration crisis, which a lot of people didn't know. If D.C. were a state, it would have the highest incarceration rate in the country. The people who are in prison in the district are disproportionately black, and almost all of them transferred to federal facilities that are hundreds and thousands of miles away, which, as we've talked about before, makes it incredibly difficult for people to visit their loved ones. And we know that maintaining good relationships with your family and friends is central to reducing recidivism once you get out. Like The strength of your social ties is one of the most direct predictors of whether or not you will end up back in prison after you've been released. In the past few years, the D.C. Council has passed two laws that have aimed to sort of provide reprieve or a second opportunity for young offenders. There was the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act of 2016, which gave relief to juveniles who were tried as adults, um, so people under the age of 18. And those who had served at least 20 years who were not yet eligible for parole could petition the Superior Court to have their sentences reduced. In 2019, the council revised that law to allow juveniles who served 15 years and those who'd been denied parole to request a sentence reduction in the same sort of way. Now the council is considering, like I said, the Second Look Act, which would allow individuals who committed their offense before the age of 25 to petition for release after 15 years of incarceration. This makes sense because all the research that we have, as we've talked about before, shows that the part of the brain that you know shapes impulse control and manages risky behavior doesn't fully develop until age 25. And the Supreme Court noted this fact when they prohibited the execution of juvenile offenders and when they curtailed juvenile life sentences without parole which many folks know is what I've spent past several years studying in graduate school and what I'm writing my dissertation on, and explain that the parts of the brain that are involved in behavior controls continue to mature through late adolescence, through the early 20s, and that those individuals are, quote, less culpable because of their immaturity and recklessness as a result of the lack of brain development that has happened. So if we are following the science and if we're following the empirical evidence, it would suggest that not only people under the age of 18, which we have to remember is a largely sort of arbitrary number that we have decided is the demarcation between youth and adulthood that is not actually grounded in any sort of meaningful science, but is actually age 25. And so if we want to be consistent with the science, we should recognize that whatever opportunities we're providing to people who are under the age of 18, we should theoretically then be providing that to people who are under the age of 25 in the same way because your brain isn't fully developed until then. A lot of people don't know about this bill. If you live in D.C., please reach out to your city council person. Um, If you know people who live in D.C., please reach out to them. This is a really important and great opportunity to reduce mass incarceration in the city. And what we know is that people are far less likely to commit crime once they pass age 30, and it drops precipitously after age 35 moving forward. So these folks are almost never a threat to public safety, and it just makes economic sense, it makes social sense, it makes moral sense, and we should not let a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney get in the way of passing legislation that is aligned with the mission of reducing the amount of people who are in prison when they don't need to be there. What you said about not letting a Trump-appointed official do this is incredibly important because this is D.C. business. It's actually not federal business. This is another argument for D.C. statehood. And as a D.C. resident, um, I care a great deal about this. The fact of the matter is the city council who has been trying to curb mass incarceration in the district, those are the folks who were duly elected by the people of the District of Columbia to make this decision. Not Donald Trump, not anybody that he appointed, most certainly. So at the end of the day, 
this is an issue both because she is taking a particular moral stance that we shouldn't agree with, but also literally because she's getting in business that is not hers to be in. The fact of the matter is this is up to the mayor, the city council and others. And so Clint's point about if you're a D.C. resident reaching out to your city council person and making sure that they know that they have our support in curbing mass incarceration here in the district is critically important. What I am interested in is the way this rhetoric sort of works. So since the first law was passed in 2016, less than 20 people have been released. You know, you hear her talk about it and you would think that they had freed half the people in D.C. corrections. And that's just not what's happening. It's less than 20 people have been released. And that's actually frustrating for advocates. I know lawyers who are working on these cases And they are like, this is actually moving much slower than people anticipated. I know people are incarcerated in D.C. and they thought that this was going to move a lot quicker. And it is not. You know, you think about even this idea of being released after 20 years or the other proposal around 15 years. If you've ever been to a prison or jail, you walk out being like, okay, putting people in cages doesn't make them better. Like if you believed it before, rhetorically, you walk out being like, okay, this certainly isn't the answer. And 15 years is a lot of time. I mean, like, I don't know how much you want people to suffer. A year is a lot of time. 15 years is a whole lot of time. The other thing I'd say is that remember that D.C. actually does not have a prison. D.C. Corrections doesn't have a facility to hold people who get convicted by D.C. Superior Court. So D.C. has a relationship with the Bureau of Prisons at the federal government level to house prisons because they don't have a prison. Did you know that two-thirds of people who are convicted of felonies in D.C. actually serve prison sentences outside of the region that they actually don't even serve inside of D.C.? And there are people who were like, okay, well, the First Step Act has this provision that says that federal inmates have to be housed within 500 miles of their home whenever possible. People brought that to the Bureau of Prisons as a part of this strategy, and the Bureau of Prisons responded by saying, we appreciate it, but the requirement is not binding, and the actions of the Bureau of Prisons are not reviewable by the judiciary. So the first step back, some people thought that it said that they must be housed within 500 miles. It does not. Existing policy already said that it should be 500 miles when possible, but it's still up to the Bureau of Prisons. That's another reminder that the first step back is largely a scam and that we have a lot more work to do. My news is about classical sculptures. So uh, there's an article in The New Yorker that I was really fascinated by, and it is about the myth of classical sculptures. It's a great piece. It starts with some researchers going to see ancient sculptures and realizing that the original sculptures had way more pigment in them and way more color than what we've seen in museums. So you go to museums, you see the classical sculptures, it's like white marble Everything's white. That's like sort of how it's presented. And what these scholars realized is that there were a different set of scholars who had spent their careers essentially scraping the color off of the sculptures. That that is what they did. They literally whitewashed, literally whitewashed the sculptures to take all the color off their lips, all the color off their skin, their hair. And this is like the thrust of the article. Some things that I want to point out that I thought were really interesting is that one of the things that comes out in the article is that researchers talk about this idea that during that period, pale skin was actually considered unmasculine, that bronze skin was associated with the heroes who fought on battlefields and competed as athletes naked in the amphitheaters, that there were actually depictions of darker skin seen on ancient vases and small terracotta figures from naturalistic paintings in Egypt. And there are a few paintings that survive on wood from that time that do have the pigment intact. 
And then there are a set of scholars who sort of push us to think much deeper about the way race was constructed back then and how racist ideologies are replicating themselves in the way that scholars presented these sculptures. In this one scholar, Whitmarsh, points out that in the Odyssey, the goddess Athena is said to have restored Odysseus to godlike good looks in this way. And it quotes, he became black-skinned again and the hairs became blue around his chin. There are a whole set of scholars who are now reclaiming the reality that the people in that region were not white, that so much of what we think of race today was not the way people thought about it before. But the big takeaway here is that there was an intentional whitewashing of history so that people would think that beauty was white, that the only people who were models are white, and that the standard, again, was white. So this reminds me of something I was scrolling through a few years ago. It's a book published by Harvard University Press. It's The Image of the Black in Western Art. That's the title of the book. Part of what the book outlines is the way that Western art changed and evolved in order to codify, in order to reify, in order to legitimate the formation of race and thus racism after the transatlantic slave trade becoming an important part of social and political life through the Western world. And the argument that the books make is that you can trace the evolution of how black people are depicted in Western art from before the transatlantic slave trade existed, in which people were often depicted in ways that were reflective of their full humanity, in ways that did not attempt to position people in what were very clearly dehumanized or subservient positions in order to legitimate their inferiority. But that did begin to happen after the slave trade came into existence because part of what we know about the way that, specifically in America, the way that race came into existence is that it came into existence in order to justify and legitimate the slave trade. And so if you are going to keep millions of black people in bondage, you need to not only codify it through law, but you also need to make it pervasive in culture. You need to make it pervasive through art and sort of inundate people with all of these messages that black people are in fact inferior and that this is their natural position and that a caste system is the most important and the best way to set up and create a society. So I'm always fascinated by, as someone who creates art, the role that art plays in shaping the socio-political realities that we occupy and what a powerful role those things can play in shaping the way that we imagine what is real and what is not. I took Latin for six years from seventh through 12th grade. One of the things that I learned culturally in seventh or eighth grade pretty early on was this idea that pale skin showed the wealth of the person because they didn't have to go out and work in the field. And therefore, women would often actually put pale powder on their skin to make themselves even more pale to show just how rich and wealthy and therefore powerful they were. And we follow that and this classical idea of what beauty is, what power is, what is right, and the centrality of whiteness to understand that the value that was assigned to pale skin allows people to want to go and invent whiteness, right? So it's not just I'm Greek or I'm Irish or I'm Italian, but recognizing that if white skin is central, then whiteness can be invented and coalesced 
This is just what leads us to take for granted certain things and believe that they are true. It is why in so many churches in America right now, you will walk in and see a very classical looking version of Jesus with blue eyes and pale skin and long flowing brown hair when obviously we know in Revelations, it says that his hair was white like wool and that his feet looked like bronze. And so again, we just take these notions for granted and it's incumbent upon all of us to just stop sometimes and think, how did I come to believe the things that I do, right? Even just the little things. What can the invention of certain aesthetics teach me about the things that I need to dismantle today? That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long into the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop And now my conversation with Cassandra Stubbs and Anthony Graves. Cassandra is the director of the ACLU Capital Punishment Project. And Anthony was the 138th U.S. death row exoneree and now manages smart justice at the ACLU of Texas. Cassandra and Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I wanted to start with both of you. How did you get into the work that you do? Both of you are at the ACLU. Cassandra, you run the Capital Punishment Project. Anthony, you recently joined the project. Uh, would love to know like, how you got to where you are in the work. I'll start then. The way I got involved in this work is I was wrongfully convicted. You know, I, I spent 18 and a half years of my life fighting for my right to be free. And out of 18 and a half years of those, I was on death row for 12 and a half of those years. And I received two execution dates. It witnessed over 400 men around me being executed by the state of Texas, men who were definitely guilty, some men who were innocent, men who had been mentally ill, cases deserved a lesser included offense, but they were all meeting the same faith. And uh, after witnessing this for so many years, I just felt like in order for it to make a difference or make sense in my life, that I had to get out and do something about it. I had to get out and be active and letting people know what was actually going on in our criminal justice system, particularly with the death penalty. 
And so I began uh, sharing my story across the globe, and I came across the ACLU of Texas who had just embarked on their Smart Justice campaign. And uh, we sat down and had a conversation, and there was interest in the same work. And I ended up being their manager on their Smart Justice campaign and also a consultant with it. And so here I am, man, we're doing great work around criminal justice reform. So I went to law school following working as a union organizer. I had been interested in labor rights and had worked in a number of states with the farm workers and with the food and commercial workers and with the steel workers and really felt like working people were not given a fair shake and thought the law school might be a good set of tools for that. And then I came to criminal justice work and the death penalty in particular because There was a very phenomenal death penalty lawyer at NYU at that time. He's still there named Brian Stevenson, and he runs a death penalty office in Montgomery, Alabama. And so really after going to hear him speak like so many other people over the last few decades, I became really moved to get involved in the problems that really kind of crossed over and overlapped with some of the same social justice issues I had seen when I did organizing work and union work. Cassandra, I'll start with you. You know, most people definitely who listen to this pod, and I would say a lot of people would would say that they are obviously against wrongful convictions, right? But still, those same people might support capital punishment. What have you seen as like an effective way to make the case for the end of capital punishment. Is there a way we should be talking about it or thinking about it in ways that you've actually seen to be effective in moving people's thoughts? Yeah, well, I think that that starts with what I think some folks have as a false premise, which is this idea that we can fix the problems that we've seen with the death penalty. We can fix the problems of racial discrimination, or we can fix the innocence problem and then get on with the business of capital punishment. And that's both empirically and foundationally wrong. What we've seen is that in over 40 years of the modern death penalty, this death penalty with all these changes that were designed to make it fairer, to make the system work better, the death penalty is as broken and inherently not able to bring any semblance of justice today as it was 40 years ago. I think innocence is an issue that really has moved people and that, as you say, nobody is for convicting the innocent. And so you can't stand up and say, I'm for the death penalty, and at the same time not wrestle with the fact that that means our system is going to sweep up innocent people. Are there any ways that we talk about this that we should not talk? Like, is there any advice for those of us who don't believe in capital punishment that you've seen to be ineffective, like ways of talking about it that are like the wrong ways of talking about it? I don't think that there are the wrong ways. I think that sometimes folks come from a very personal belief that may be not one that is going to bridge to folks who come at it from a different moral place. You know, sometimes people are opposed to the death penalty for religious reasons, or sometimes people really care about what the rest of the world is doing. And those messages may not resonate with folks who have different religious views or folks who think that the United States should just focus on itself and not really embrace a worldview. Yeah. And I'd just like to add that, you know, my argument Not so much as an argument, but my conversation with people around the death penalty, especially those who oppose or who are proponents of it, is that 
I think each and every one of us should have the right to feel the way we feel about capital punishment, the death penalty, because that is an emotional reaction to something that tragically happened in our lives, happened in the lives of someone that we know and love. But I do not think that that's the place where we should govern from, because that's an emotional place. And if we're governed from our emotions, we're bound to get it wrong. I think it should come from the rational place. And I think that when you talk about the death penalty, that we shouldn't condemn people for believing in the death penalty because they was emotionally scarred from a tragic situation. But we should educate people about the death penalty and the effects that it really does have at the end of the day, the ripple effects. And if we get it wrong, how we cannot reverse it. We do not have to practice it if we already know that it fails us. And Anthony, I wanted to ask you, you know, you had such a long and unfair time incarcerated. And, you know, we believe in the end of incarceration in general, certainly for people who, like you, were wrongfully convicted. How do you even talk about your experience or the experience of being on death row and seeing people executed who might have been with you during your your time incarcerated? How do you tell that story? What are the things about that experience that stick out that we should know that can help us all make better decisions as a society? The way I talk about this story, my story is I want to educate you about our need for criminal justice reform because I truly believe that if we reform our system, we'll do away with the death penalty. The death penalty cannot stand in a reformed criminal justice system. So I like to share my story in a way that educates you about why we need reform. For example, I like to talk to you about the prosecutorial misconduct, the fact that they knew that I was innocent, but yet they moved to execute a man simply because I didn't have the resources to afford justice. I like to talk about the inhumanity behind those prisons walls, men taking their own lives, men going insane simply because of the conditions that they're existing under. They're no longer living. So this whole life without parole, that is just a myth paper on words because once you're behind those bars and you condemn either death or you condemn to die of natural causes, you lose a lot of hope. So I like to talk to people about the inhumanity that I witness. And I like to talk to people about the actual death sentences that are being carried out and officers' response to them community response to them, the media response to them. I want to educate us because I want us to understand that we don't have to be like this. That's the better way. You know, if you want to talk about having a death sentence, then okay, let's talk about a death sentence. Let's talk about death by incarceration. You know what that is? That is life without parole, what you already have. So I think it's the narrative that we need to shape here. Are there any misconceptions about incarceration that you've come up against. I can imagine that now you talk to so many people who have never been in a prison or don't know people who are incarcerated or have ever been incarcerated. Are there any questions that you get about incarceration or about death row that highlight that people just have real deep misconceptions about the criminal justice system? Well, as for me, you know, people seem to think that men are just on death row, laying back in their cells, watching TV, eating gummy bears, writing letters, having people come visit them, and they're living like kings. That is so untrue. Men are behind walls, six by nine walls that are closing in on them every day, literally driving them insane. Some of them dropping their pills. Some of them hanging themselves. Some of them slitting their throats. Some of them even overdosing on their medication to try to get away from the chaos that exists in their lives every day. So that's this myth and misunderstanding how men are 
are living behind prison walls. Yeah, I think Anthony has portrayed the same kinds of conditions that we hear about from our clients in prison and death rows across America. Folks are in solitary confinement. They're locked in a tiny cell. They're often horrible temperature conditions, extraordinary heat, no air conditioning in the deep south, horrible infestations. I mean, the conditions of the prisons are really appalling. Cassandra, I wanted to talk to you about juries. Is there something we can do to make juries better? Because I believe that most people who get a death sentence It's done through the jury process. Is there a way to just make that better or am I wrong? So there are two really big problems with jury selection. And one is unique to capital cases and one is just worse in capital cases. So the first problem is really a problem in all criminal trials. And that's the problem of um, what are called peremptory strikes. And that's when the lawyers come into a case They get to sometimes, if they're in state court, in most state courts, they get to question the jurors or they have the jurors fill out a questionnaire. And then they get to have these kind of freebie, I don't like you, I don't want you to be a juror, strike. And they get to remove people from the jury pool. In a typical criminal case, each side will get maybe three strikes. In a capital case, you usually have extra strikes. So defense and the prosecutor might get 14 strikes. And what we know from every study that's ever looked at it, what every lawyer in America, if they're being truthful with you, will concede is that race plays a huge role in this. It has been used as a tool of discrimination with the effect of producing much whiter juries than the jury pool or the the population where the trial is occurring. And it's really been used to produce much worse juries. We know as a matter of science, there's tons of research around this, that jurors that are not diverse do worse decision making. The more folks have in common in terms of their background, the less likely they are to actually engage and discuss the evidence. And so we find that the deliberations are shorter and less thorough. And not coincidentally, we see that when you have all white or nearly all white juries, that that's oftentimes a risk factor for wrongful convictions. So I would say that we should get rid of peremptory strikes, period. You know, they, we, we don't need them. And I think the price of discrimination in jury selection is too high. It's particularly too high in capital cases where it's used so wholesale because of the larger number of strikes that the prosecution and the defense counsel have. Why do you get extra strikes for a capital case? Is that just like how it was, the system was made? That was, yes. I mean, I mean, I don't really know who came up with that idea initially. Um, I know in some states, actually, it used to be that the defense got extra strikes, but not the prosecution. In that system, I imagine that it was intended as a way to try to enforce the unfairness or the challenges of having somebody charged in a capital case and to try to make the trial fairer to the defendant. But over time, as prosecutors have gotten these numbers of strikes, lots of times what we see, and when we looked, we did a big examination here in connection with some litigation in North Carolina, and by the time the prosecution is done with their strike patterns, they've passed oftentimes an all-white or nearly all-white jury pool to be selected by defense counsel. That's just a big problem. The other major issue is the fact that every death sentence in America is rigged in the sense that the people who are opposed to the death penalty are automatically kicked off the capital case. So they can't participate in the guilt decisions and they can't participate in deciding who gets the death penalty and who doesn't. 
And that's fundamentally unfair. We know as a group that that group of folks are oftentimes a lot more skeptical of the prosecution. They would be the ones in the guilt phase asking hard questions about the proof. When you have conflicting witnesses, how you resolve that testimony. The people who we really need in the jury room have been kicked out of a capital case. So if I have a client, an innocent client, the last thing I want them to ever be charged with is the death penalty, one, because it's, of course, horrifying to imagine being on death row and innocent, but to start with because they have a much worse shot at trial of actually being acquitted. You have these conviction-prone juries. Anthony, how did you eventually get it overturned? What was that process? Like, how did that even happen? Wow. Uh, well, the process was, it took uh, 18 and a half years. I started when I was on death row, and I understood that, you know, things that they couldn't take from me, I wasn't going to be giving to them. And when I realized that, I realized that I still had the power to reach out to people and ask people to help me save my life. So that's what I started doing. I started writing letters all over the world asking people to help me save my life. And people would respond. They would learn about my case and get involved. And from there, I created an organization called Join Hands for Justice. I started it in Paris, France, with a pen pal who had started writing to me. And from there, it moved throughout Europe, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, Germany, etc. And those people came together and uh, started making a loud noise about my case. And it got all the way over here to America. And it got the uh, attention of an independent uh, investigator. And she started doing her own work, and she came down and interviewed me. And afterwards, she reached out to an innocent clinic here in Houston, Texas, and told them that she felt that they needed to take a look at my case. Well, they did, and uh, one lady and her students who was at this university, she was a professor, she came to that innocent class that night and heard my story. And the guy who was teaching the class told her that my case was on a fast-track execution, but it had never really been investigated, and he wanted to know if anyone would be interested in investigating the case. So this journalism professor, I looked at her students, and together they raised their hand, and they just raised their hand because they just wanted to kind of know what was going on with the case, but hadn't made up their mind if I'm innocent or anything. So they got involved in my case, and they started doing their own investigation two years before they even reached out to me. Then they came down and spoke with me, and uh, we had a conversation, and they ended up telling me that they had been working on my case, and they believed in my innocence. And from there, the journalism professor, who was also an attorney, she decided to you know, kind of get her license back, and she joined my team as my attorney. And for over 10 years, we fought tooth and nail to overturn my convictions. And that led to my uh, case being overturned on prosecutorial misconduct, and eventually I was exonerated. And I've been out here advocating ever since. Do you remember when you realized that it would be overturned? Like, do you remember that moment? Because 18 years is a long time, those milestones to be fighting for your case. So I can only imagine that there were times when it felt like it might take another 10 years, another six years. And do you remember when you realized, like, wow, I think we did it? So when it came that day that I was getting out, and I, I never forget that the my attorney, who had been fighting with me for over 10 years, Nicole Caceres, she stood up and she was batting back tears. And and I'm thinking that it's just some more bad news, but I didn't care. I had my shield and my sword in my hand, and they was going to either kill me or free me, but I wasn't going to compromise. We had we had to win over that already. And she looked at me and she said, Anthony, you remember when you told me that God was good? 
And I said, yeah, but I was wondering what that has to do with anything, you know. And she said, well, I just want you to know that today the state has dismissed all the charges against you. And they didn't dismiss the charges against you because they've lost evidence or witnesses have died. They dismissed the charges against you because they truly believe in your actual innocence. And tomorrow they're going to hold a press conference and let the whole world know that you're an innocent man. And at that moment, Deray, I, it was like I was so afraid to believe that because I had been behind those bars for over 6,640 days. And every day I woke up behind walls. And I was so afraid that if this wasn't true, as real as it seemed, could I get back from this? Because I've been here before only to wake up and still see prison walls. So at this moment, the, uh, the uh, law enforcement officer, he came to me. He said, hey, man, do you want to go get your property out your cell? And I said, yes, but I didn't want to get the property. I didn't know what I wanted. I was so discombobulated because they was telling me at this moment it was over. After 18 and a half years, two execution dates, over 413 people being executed around you. Man, it's over. And by the time I got to the cell with the officer, he said, you want anything out of here? I said, man, I don't want nothing. I just want to go before y'all change your mind. And that was the day that I walked out at 45 years old. And I went in at 26, walked out at 45 years old. But it was also the day, the first day I had the sunshine of freedom on my face in 18 and a half years, man. And that's a day I would never forget because I was able to get out and call my mom and let her also know, today it's over with. We are now off of death row. And that also released her as well. And so that's a day I would never forget, man. I mean, I get chills just talking about it. I got chills just listening to it. What was the first thing you did? I hugged my mom. Oh, was she there? No, I called her on the phone, and I got the chance to hear my mom on the phone. And she was like, hello, and I, and I was asking her what was she cooking. She was like, why? And I was telling her that I was going to come home. And she didn't believe it was me at the time. And I told her, yeah, I'm on my way home, Mom. And for the first time, I got a chance in 20 minutes to hug my mom that I hadn't hugged in 18 years. And that was the greatest feeling that I had in the world because it also gave her release. She was no longer on death row, and she was finally hugging her son, her oldest child, that she had lost hope. Didn't think that this day would come because it had been so many days and we had gotten so many bad results from the courts. And to finally be hugging her oldest son again. I remember the yell, the yell that she let out, the scream when she finally got a chance to hug me. It's something I'll never forget. It was just, it's, it's just, it's an out-of-body experience. I can only imagine. Um, thank you for sharing that. Cassandra, I want to talk a little bit more about the system. So... I know 21 states have repealed the death penalty. Uh, does it look like more on the horizon? It does. And, you know, 21 is the number that have officially and permanently repealed the death penalty. But there are four more governor moratorium states. So really, for the first time since the 1970s, half the country do not officially have the death penalty. We saw in the legislature this year that there were a number of bills that got moved that were close, that we expect to see more movement in the coming year or two or three. Um, you know, I would say folks will be watching Colorado, for example, but a number of the Western states had really bipartisan movement on the death penalty. 
And is there a state that stands out in terms of more people either being killed on death row or more people on death row? Well, in terms of size, California is really in its own category. It's more than twice the size of any other death row uh, with more than 700 people on death row. And that's part of why it was such big news when Governor Newsom issued the moratorium this year and, and put all those folks into safety. He dismantled the execution chamber, closed the execution chamber, which was really an enormous step forward for California. In terms of executions, you know, Texas, as Anthony painfully knows, I'm sure, continues to be a leader in actually carrying out executions. And this was a really difficult year where they moved forward with a lot of executions and step with its historical pattern of doing that, even though as we heard from Anthony, even though they have this major problem with innocence. And what can listeners do? So there are going to be people who are like, I get it. I'm convinced. I want to do something. What can they do? For folks who live in a state with the death penalty, there are active coalitions that are working on ending the death penalty in every state that has the death penalty. I think if you're in a state that doesn't have the death penalty, One piece that we haven't really talked about is how much the death penalty is part of extreme sentencing and how work on broader criminal justice issues also is part and parcel of the project to end the death penalty. Because you can't can't really tolerate extreme and racially biased sentencing and have the death penalty. So I, I really see folks who are engaged in criminal justice reform in states without the death penalty as part of the same movement that is really helping turn the tide here and bring it so that we can see the end of the death penalty on the horizon. Yeah. And and I like to add to that to just say, you know, people who really want to get involved, they believe in this and know that we need change. Then I'll say, take that to the ballot box. You have to vote. But more importantly, you have to know who you're voting for. And you have to also realize how important DA races across the countries are. People don't realize that the DA's office is the most important office in our criminal justice system, but has the least oversight. And here's another statistical fact, and that is over 90 percent of our DAs across our country, they're white. And most of their offices are the makeup of their own. And so, you know, when they go and talk to someone about a young black kid that's in front of them, they go talk to someone that looks like them. And then they go make a decision about a kid they have no connection to. I say that we have to do also address that issue. You know, I think that's the issue that should be treated as a civil rights issue, that there need to be more diversity in our DA's offices across the country so that they can relate to the people that they're actually serving justice to. That is a big problem. The question I ask everybody is, what do you say to people who are losing hope in this moment? There are a lot of people who have voted, protested, called, emailed. They've done all the things they were told to do, and the world hasn't changed like they thought it would. What do you say to those people? Well, I just always share my story with them and tell them that, look, hope is the one thing that can't no one take away from you. If they could have taken that away from me, I would be dead today because I would have. That's all I had left. You know, it took me 18 and a half years for justice to prevail. And I held on. I held on to my hope to it actually happen. It may not come today. It may not come tomorrow. But I promise you, if you stay hopeful for change, it will happen. We see that there are especially local reforms that are gaining ground and we are bringing change. And I think that one piece of advice I have is to put down your phone and go out and get with people who are organizing around some of these issues in person. I think we can sometimes feel really isolated and alone in a way that just connecting over email or listening or watching something may not break through. 
being together with other people who are in this bigger struggle, I think can help with some of that hopelessness. And last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? So I always like to tell people that it's not the act that defines you, it's how you respond to it that defines you. So knowing that gives you choices. And when you know you have choices, just make the best choice for you. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently was some advice that if you really want to take on the hard issues and the hard challenges around criminal justice work and and the death penalty that you need to be ready to be tired, that this work is going to make you weary and that it's hard, that you just need to get up and keep going. But you need to expect that this will be hard work. And that's a sign that we're doing it right, not a sign that we need to give up. Well, thank you so much, Anthony and Cassandra, for joining me today on Pod Save the People. I can't wait to see how the work continues and to be a part of it however I can. Thanks so much. And thank you for inviting us. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.